Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this latest IFG live event. Uh, you may not have noticed this week with all the excitement about the US elections and indeed with uh, England, at least, uh, entering lockdown too. Um, but Brexit is still going on in the background. And indeed, we are now into what must be deemed to be the final phase of Brexit with that famous deadline for the end of transition leaving uh, looming uh, on the 31st of December. So today we're going to focus on actually how on earth can the government get any cut through on Brexit at a time when everybody else is more interested in other things. So we're looking at that communications challenge um, and the communications challenge on Brexit. Of course, government don't accept that premise. They ban the use of the B word. And some of my uh, other colleagues did a word count at the Conservative Party conference where the most notable thing was the fact that nobody mentioned Brexit at all because Brexit is, after all, done. But uh, it may be done in one sense. We've left the EU. There's no going back now but there's still a major challenge in getting people ready. Deal or no deal. And as we've seen, we still don't know, even at this very late stage, whether it's deal or no deal. And as Michael Gove and David Frost have told Parliament, Canada, code for deal, and Australia, the uh, very helpful branding of no deal with its connotations of sunshine, kangaroos and Kylie Minogue are similar, but not identical. So business, others still in a bit of a bind there. So what to do, how to get over the message on needing to prepare while still communicating the government's message that Brexit was worth it. So I'm joined by a stellar lineup of people to take us through and unpack that challenge. And please, to make this event even more exciting, pile in your questions. Uh, I'm Jill Rutter, I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government. I am joined by, in no particular order, Paul Harrison, Senior Counsel at Lexington Communications and former Number 10 Press Secretary. James Johnson, founding partner of JL Partners, highly recommend his focus groups with Matt Shawley on Times Radio. He's hopefully in... So the, the great thing about doing webinars is that um, <laughs> I couldn't really hear any of that. I did hear my name and something about comms challenge. So I'm going to make up a question, which is much easier than doing a press briefing and, and, and try and answer it. Um, I think you were saying, Jill, sorry, that it kind of what would I be doing now or, or what are the challenges? And I thought maybe it might be helpful to try and lay out the challenges about why this is a really difficult thing to communicate. So to begin with, I think there's a certain amount of genuine Brexit messaging fatigue that the public are going through. When James and I, uh, were number 10 staffers, which feels a long time ago now, because it was, um, you know, we had a program of pre-agreeing a deal, trying to get people ready for the change demands of what leaving the European Union would mean for businesses and stuff. So we had these, this program of technical notices, as they were called, and they, there were, you know, over a hundred of the things. So there was an incredibly complicated sort of clearance process, but essentially it's all said for particular sectors, what is going to happen and what's going to be different when you leave the EU. So we had a few of those. We had, uh, you know, preparation to to try to, in the run up to European councils and things, where there was at least a possibility of leaving without a deal if we were going for an extension. We weren't sure we were going to get one. There was, you know, there were those kind of things, and that's the origin, I suppose, of this sort of campaign. Then, of course, you had, you know, an election last time. We had a, a get ready for Brexit program. Uh, we've now got a new comms campaign uh, and, you know, I think, I suppose it's just there's a certain amount of repetition that the public and business have had to put up with. I don't think it's anybody's fault, but you can understand why if you are told that you're going to the brink four or five times and it never quite happens, you might disengage with it uh, after after a couple of instances of that. So. You know, I think, you know, the essential problem and the challenge is, is is one of cut through. But realistically, it's made a lot harder by the fact that we are living through a once in a 75 year news cycle. You know, it would be difficult, I think, because of that weariness that I talked about to meaningfully communicate precisely what people should do. 
when it comes to preparing for Brexit, even without the fact that we're in this completely unprecedented situation where people are gen genuinely fearful, um, given everything that's going on with COVID. I mean, the only thing I would say, though, that's kind of a, a bit more of a positive, having tried to explain without a great deal of eloquence, the challenge, uh, generally speaking, when it comes to these sorts of campaigns and responding to them, people do so late. So the fact that you've had a significant amount, maybe some people would say anyway, of non-engagement or limited engagement with uh, preparedness and, and all that sort of thing, which is, I think, understandable given the uncertainty. Um, it's also the case that when people do snap their attention and turn their head towards something, uh, when government communicates it, it tends to be late and anybody who has ever filled in a tax return will tell you that. So that's my sort of opening, uh, opening start, given that I helpfully couldn't hear the question. Thank you very much, Paul. And I'm going to step in because I think we have lost Jill, unfortunately, due to some internet gremlins. Um, but I mean, you picked up on some really interesting themes there, particularly around sort of the fact that uh, people maybe only turn to these messages quite late, people are Brexit fatigued, and the fact that obviously we're dealing with not just a very complicated Brexit communications message this year, but also communicating about COVID and about very pressing sort of public health messages as well. And um, I thought I might turn to you, James, and sort of pick up on, I mean, given all of those challenges that Paul outlined, I just where are the public with Brexit? I suppose how um, how engaged have they been in Brexit this year after, as Jill said at the start, we sort of got Brexit done in January and particularly sort of uh, where, I suppose for the communications challenge for the next couple of months, what is the starting point? You know, where, how prepared or how aware of the changes coming are the public at the moment? Yeah, it's certainly, well, as Paul alludes to there, even, you know, last year, year before that, um, you know, there was this general sense of Brexit fatigue in, uh, you know, from the public that was very clear in the research that has, you know, been amplified even more so now because of coronavirus. Um, many people sort of view Brexit increasingly as a bit of a distraction. Um, it's sort of lower in the issues agenda when you ask the public, you know, what are the most important issues facing the country? It's much lower than it was at this time last year. Um, and in focus groups, when you bring it up, um, when you bring even just the word Brexit up, um, it tends to prompt sort of um, uh, laughter, um, derision, um, because people can't quite believe this is being talked about. You know, they think this is something that was resolved last year. And, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, people almost can't quite believe it. So it's certainly a, a difficult um, environment to be uh, to be sort of uh, to be engaged in. There's also that get Brexit done element, which is really, really important. Um, I think one of the key ways to understand that December 2019 general election is that it wasn't won by the Conservatives because of a Brexit culture war. It was won because it was a Brexit boredom war. You know, people were so desperate to just stop talking about the thing that actually the Conservative message of, you know, let's get this put to one side meant that they won very decisively amongst quite a lot of Conservative leaning Remain voters as well as Leave voters. Now, that matters to this because, you know, the downside of that success is that now a lot of people do think it is done or is way on the way to being done. And, uh, you know, therefore not not, you know, they don't need much to worry about it. Um, and that clearly has had a, has had a bit of an impact um, in that regard too. So you know those pre-existing things, you know the fatigue um, and also you know general skepticism of sort of you know messages about uh, threats rising arising from Brexit that was there beforehand. Past this impact of COVID, does mean it's a more difficult um, environment. But I'd I would say though that you know um, although uh, you know the public are not sort of um, you know currently uh, hugely sort of plugged plugged into this. Um, I, I would completely agree with Paul's point about the last minute nature of this. I mean, if you look at searches on Google for the word Brexit um, on, on Google Trends, you know, it's really interesting because basically for the whole of 2017 and 2018, when I mean, certainly I think uh, Paul and I could say that we felt like we were thinking about Brexit most days, um, you know, it was re it's very, very low. It only really spikes at those moments of sort of crisis or, 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 or high political drama. Um, so it may be, um, uh, as Paul alludes to, that you know it's the last-minute nature of this where this uh, where this really um, really sort of comes in. Um, and of course, you know there are different audiences. Um, although the general public might not be particularly plugged in, certainly you know many of these uh, um, certainly a YouGov poll uh, back in uh, uh, last month you know showed that actually you know a few of these businesses are are saying they feel prepared even if they're quite critical of the government's government's campaign to date so yeah a difficult a difficult context for the public uh, for the for the public 
Um, but uh, yeah, the sort of the more technical the message um, uh, and amping up that last minute nature of it, um, it may mean it, it, it may yet cut through. So um, I'm going to come back in now, hopefully. James still again. Um, do you think it matters that the government's refusing to use the Brexit word? Is that uh, is that hampering their ability to communicate or is that actually a politically very savvy thing to do, given that the election was fought on getting Brexit done? Yeah, I think it. I mean, it's, it's an interesting example, I think, where the sort of political and uh, the sort of um, uh, technical aims, I suppose, are slightly different because um, clearly you can understand why they why they want to say that. And clearly, you know, I'm sure in their focus groups, they're hearing the same as in mine, where, you know, people sort of recoil at the use of that word. I suppose the problem and, and of course, there's another political benefit, of course, in, in uh, you know, sort of uh, framing no deal uh, as a uh, you know Australian Australian style trade deal which uh, um, uh, might be a, a bit misleading um, but um, what what is certainly the case though is that the you know on the other hand that the technical aim is actually as you say you know a need to remind people of of the existence of Brexit and of the need to do it I think it's probably I think this campaign probably can work without using the B word um, I think it in many ways it might help I mean certainly some of the more um, effective uh, government campaigns um, when when I was in number 10 were those much more sort of technical you know fill out your tax return you know um, uh, you know make sure you um, uh, you know you fill out you fill out this by this time um, or here's some information on the national living wage or here's how you uh, you know here's how you're eligible for this for this benefit or whatever else you know it may be that actually a very sort of you know self-focused you know technical this is what you need to do now without bringing in that word uh, could 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 well be a better way of getting this message across. And that, and that you know, that's where, you know, in, in fairness to the government, this sort of time is running out slogan they've got now. They're clearly seeing the same pressures that we're seeing and they're clearly seeing that that public not quite zoomed in. And I think they're hoping that, you know, by amping up the sort of danger of that message, um, then it will start to cut through. Lisa, I wanted to come to you now. We um... James has sort of said, well, actually, business is getting prepared, despite some of the sort of rhetoric around this and the sort of concerns that have been expressed. But both James and Paul have compared preparing for Brexit to like filling in your tax return, which I think nobody sees as I have the opportunity to fill in my tax return. And I'm really looking forward to it. How far do you think the government's ability to communicate about Brexit has been compromised by determination, certainly in the summer, to focus as much on the opportunities from Brexit as on the immediate tasks and compliance costs of Brexit. And what do you think, what's your assessment of what business still needs to know and do? Okay, so Jill, if I could just go back to something that um, you had said earlier in your introductory remarks. You talked about um, the challenge of political messaging and how you convey that along with the message that the public needs to um, to receive and I think in that lies the central problem and the central tension. The communications needed for Brexit and I must say I disagree with some of the earlier comments I think there's never been a time when the word Brexit is needed more. There should be a Brexit website etc. Now I'll, come, I'll just go back to that but the, I think the problem is with the communications at the moment the government is still um, wrapped up in this, the, the politics of Brexit, and there need, really needs to be a completely separate, completely utterly separate silo of communications that is aimed at an outcome which has changed behaviour. So the, what we see now in communications towards business, um, aimed at business, is something that is kind of political. It's about, it's about blame, it's about you're not ready. We've heard all those messages from Michael Gove in Parliament, and this is reflected in the current campaign. If you go to the YouTube, um, version of the current um, 30 second advert, you'll see that it launched on the 19th of October. It's been seen by about 10,000 people. Jill, I think in our off camera remarks, was rightly pointing out that when we're all um, watching non-linear TV, we're racing through the adverts. So, I mean, I would I'd go back to this idea of um, the need to communicate the message to the public. And I think when you look at campaigns in other countries, for example, the Netherlands, when you consider France, where you consider Ireland, there's a very different approach. So in this country, I would um, liken the approach here to the use of a stick. 
um, if you're not ready, you're going to be in trouble. In Ireland, there's a very plain, completely different approach, which is um, businesses, you have to be ready. Come get your 9,000 euros now for every employee you need to train to um, get up to speed with customs decorations, etc. It's a, it's, it's a carrot. And I think that's what's missing here. And, and there's an absolute failure of communications. 56 days to go. Lots and lots of businesses aren't ready. The IFG's report earlier this week on getting ready for our, our you know, are we ready for Brexit? Um, Joe, you'll remind me of the correct title. But in that, there was um, a really interesting statistic um, which showed that a third of small businesses still think the transition period can be extended. 56 days to go and the message hasn't got through. So, Joe, coming to you on uh, on this, what messages? The government's not got that much time. It still doesn't know whether it's a deal or no deal. Uh, clearly a preference for a deal. That's what uh, the official line is anyway. What does it need to prioritise in this, you know, the title you didn't give your report, the final countdown to the end of the year? Well, I think as we sort of heard from the other uh, panellists, it is just a very complicated task, basically. There is no uniform message to get across. There's no uniform audience. And there are lots of different things. Yeah, as we know, you know, large businesses with big public affairs teams are better prepared and know what's going on with Brexit. Sole traders or individuals might not have been following at all. Think Brexit's done, don't realise that things are going to be changing at the end of the year. Um, and I think in our report, we identified sort of three big areas where readiness is a big concern. One is the Northern Ireland Protocol, one is the GBEU border, but sort of underlying all of these issues is this issue of sort of business preparedness, which sort of cuts across the board and cuts across different sectors. Um, and I think you know, the things that the government needs to be doing are sort of some of the things picked up by others. I think it is about hammering home that message that is, has started to come through, but come through quite late. This sort of time is running out. I think over summer, the IFG was relatively critical of the approach to comms, which was focusing on sort of selling the opportunities of Brexit, it was sort of perhaps underplaying the consequences of not being ready. And I think in hindsight, when we look back now, when we had a bit of space over summer where the coronavirus wasn't quite as prevalent, where there perhaps was a bit more space to push home some of those messages and get businesses to prepare. And I know the government always planned to sort of go hard towards the end, picking up on a points that Paul said about the fact that people come round to these things late. But actually, we always knew when the government you know, chose not to ask for an extension to the transition period, that it was going to have to be communicating coronavirus and Brexit simultaneously. We always knew that the winter was going to be difficult on COVID front. And so I think there was this opportunity potentially to have sort of pushed home that sort of time is running out, you've got to act now message earlier on, uh, which perhaps didn't happen. I think a couple of other important points that the government will need to sort of be frank about at some point soon is, I think, the fact that preparing for Brexit does not end at the end of the year. But basically, you know, whilst there are lots of changes coming at the end of the year, um, the government has delayed some new changes that are coming in. So it's delaying some of the checks on imports at the border. It's delaying the switch to some new regulatory regimes, basically to buy business and itself a bit more time to get ready. But that means it's quite a complicated picture because you're going to have all of these staggered deadlines to prepare for certain things next year. So I think the government's going to have to really push quite hard beyond the end of this year to keep people preparing for those deadlines. I also think they need to be quite realistic that, you know, given where we are, given the poor state of preparedness. It is just not feasible that everyone is going to be ready for everything they need to do in January, particularly some of those small businesses. And there is going to be potentially this area where you know, people might have to turn up and try and go to the border without the right documentation and be turned away and fined under the new systems before they are uh, you know, they are pushed into actually acting and taking these steps. And there is likely to be disruption particularly at the border, but other areas as well, particularly around Northern Ireland potentially, um, in January while these sort, of, these sort of final preparations are put in place. Um, and I think the other sort of final big point I'd say about the government's messaging up until January is that, you know, I think this point of deal or no deal is really important. Basically, you know, most of what needs to happen 
will not change regardless of the outcome of the negotiations. So the big things that are going to change at the end of the year are a consequence of the fact that deal or no deal, the UK is going to leave the single market and customs union. There are going to be customs checks. There are going to be different regulatory regimes and things like chemicals and product standards in the UK and EU, and businesses are going to have to comply with both. There is going to be a new UK immigration system for businesses and individuals to prepare for. And if you're traveling to Europe as an individual to work, live, study, after January, there's going to be different requirements and it is going to be more onerous. And I think getting that message across is really important. And uh, I'm not sure that it has cut through. And I think there's a bit of a risk that you know, this sense that a deal could come and save the day. And actually, it's a really difficult sell for the government. A deal is a victory. Um, we've hard fought, we've done really well, but you still need to do most of the things we told you you needed to do for no deal last year. Yeah, Paul and James, I, I want to come back to you. Paul, I'm going to come to you first and then I'll come to Lisa. Uh, we've got a question from Adam Payne, Paul, just specifically at you. Uh, do you think Theresa May's repeated claim that no deal is better than a bad deal was helpful in terms of encouraging people and businesses to take reparation, to take Brexit preparation seriously enough? And if I could add to that, do you think the government has a harder sell job if there's a deal to get people ready than if there's no deal, which I think people do realise will be quite disruptive, but most people think do a deal. And this might have been true, actually, of at least some elements of Theresa May's Chequers proposal. Do a deal and all those problems go away and I can start planning for Christmas, dealing with Covid and do my tax return. Paul. Uh, assuming that that's um, Adam Payne of Business Insider fame, it's nice to know that you really, you really can't hide or get away from the lobby anywhere. They do follow you around. Um, so I think that no deal is better than a bad deal, you know, as well as being, I guess, factually true, uh, <laughs> I would argue at least, uh, wasn't a preparedness phrase. It was a negotiating phrase. Uh, you know, it was about trying to convey to the EU that we weren't going to do a deal uh, at any price. Obviously, that was sort of you know slightly eclipsed by the fact we didn't do a deal at all. But uh, but regardless, you know, I, I I don't think you can conflate those two things. Um, as I said, that's not not the purpose of, of what it was. Uh, I do recognise, I suppose, that the, the the separate and slightly wider point you you made, Joe, which is that yeah, in in deal situation there are going to be challenges, and I think that you know there will be a, a you know public perception and you know I suppose some actuality that the government has to manage, which yeah, exactly as you say, uh, you know things will feel different in a deal situation. So we've sort of been uh, in this slightly. I suppose phony wall where you know we've extended the transition period and so we have left the European Union but nothing feels different and of course we're about to leave the European Union as well as legally we're going to leave it practically at the beginning of next year and and ultimately at that point it will feel different so you know particularly if you do something that participates with the EU single market and is you know is not goods based um, even if there is a deal, it will feel very, very different. So that is something that I think the government will have to manage because ultimately, you know, there, there will be, you know, quite profound differences in both uh, deal and no deal situations. But you probably would get a certain amount of public expectation that that would be the case in a no deal situation. You might not in a deal situation. The only other thing I'd say just practically in terms of kind of cut through because I'm still sort of programmed to think like that is that before the end of the year there will be a moment either where a deal is agreed and there'll be a certain amount of fanfare and a certain amount of right-wing Tory anger and a certain amount of disappointment from other people but a deal will be agreed possibly if that happens there will be a lot of media coverage you know people will start to hear about this on the news they will start to see it on their Twitter feeds they will start to read about it in newspapers again that's equally true of no deal it possibly will be amplified actually if it's no deal but either way there will be a big moment that the government can you know, used to focus people's minds again. And that moment is unavoidable in either a deal or a no deal situation. So there are some grounds for kind of optimism in terms of increased engagement. Lisa, do you want to come in on that? Do you think that it's hard to communicate around a deal and all the changes that are needed? We had Carolyn Fairburn telling the CBI conference today, just do a deal. Business is desperate for a deal, giving the impression that that would remove a whole heap of problems, obviously remove tariffs, but not necessarily much more. Lisa. 
Um, hi. Yes, I think I, I I think the challenge in communications exists, deal or no deal. As everybody knows, who's listening to this call, the regulatory checks come in on the first of January, November. They may be phased in in the U, in Great Britain, but um, they are uh, uh, kicking in on the first of January, come what may, in Northern Ireland. And I think there is a lot of confusion, probably. I guess if I went out on, on my high street and asked people if they thought anything was going to change in January the 1st, they would say no. <clears throat> I think there's a, there's, there's a, there's a complete um, gap in the communications, which is Brexit is coming, there will be changes, X, Y and Z. And one of <clears throat> the really impactful areas would be, <clears throat> as um, I think it was Joe that just mentioned there, the immigration system changes from January the 1st. And I think that will have an impact on every single, well, it will have an impact on every single employer in the country. And already <clears throat> I'm receiving as a reporter, nothing very strong, but anecdotal evidence that the smaller employers don't know the law. So I had um, one charity with me this week um, uh, with an Italian who's going for a job in, in you know, very um, low paid, minimal wage um, job and was told that he, he um, his um, Italian ID wasn't sufficient um, to qualify him for working in Britain. Um, and I just think we're going to see a lot of that. We are going to see um, EU citizens' rights imperiled. We're going to see landlords who um, are going to turn away EU citizens. Um, we will see British citizens um, uh, have problems in Europe. I've got, you know, many cases of all very small stories, not, not hugely um, uh, impact impactful in terms of uh, cut through to the public, but you know there are a million British citizens that the UK government um, must have responsibility for who live in the EU who are going to be um, impacted. Um, so those are those those are the immediate things that need to be communicated. And like I say, I think there's never been a, a time where Brexit. Uh, you know, there, there should be a Brexit website. I, I think COVID has shown us that the community. The government can communicate to the public when it wants. Why isn't there Brexit, a Brexit panel alongside that bright yellow, um, yoke yellow COVID alert on every government website, on every public authority website, on every public sector website? Brexit is coming. You need to take action. That's very interesting. It's very interesting your point about EU citizens, Lisa, because we had a question from Richard Ward asking slightly, slightly separate question about does the panel think the government should have done more to publicise the EU settlement scheme to EU nationals in the UK. Uh, of course, four million people have registered, which is quite a success, um, but uh, quite interesting about whether the other people at the receiving end uh, know enough about the status of those EU nationals at the moment and how that changes. James, you wanted to come in and then I might go to Joe to see if he's got anything to say about uh, some of the sort of outstanding communications challenges around the immigration. James. Yeah, it's interesting that point, Jill, about the um, EU nationals, because that is, uh, from a sort of government comms perspective, a much harder group to reach. Um, uh, you know, tends to sort of, um, you know, overlap with uh, um, those demographics that are just generally a little bit, a little bit harder to reach. People live slightly more, slightly more transient lives, um, slightly, you know, tend to be in sort of um, uh, bigger, bigger cities. Um, so, you know, there are some, uh, and also just, they just, you know, they have less sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, link and interface uh, uh, with, with government. Um, so that's certainly, certainly a challenge. I just think on the, on the Brexit thing, I think um, in terms of the use of the word, I mean, I think what we have to remember here is that you know this is a this is a target audience, um, at least on the public side. I appreciate this might be different for businesses, um, but at least on the public side, you know, this is a public that recoils at the word Brexit and actually switches them off. So I think you know actually taking and, and I don't think the government is in this place yet, but I think you know they've already taken Brexit out. But by taking the sort of uh, um, you know I think the less the less sort of sunlit uplands you know, um, sort of political messaging around this and the more technical, the more this is what you need to do now, uh, probably the better. My, my worry with that Brexit word is, and I'm, and I'm not suggesting this is how uh, the government have arrived at this conclusion, but my worry about it is that actually that's exactly the thing that does switch people off and, and put, put, their, put their fingers um, uh, in their ears. Just one quick thing on, um, on, on the point around uh, a deal situation. I think that is the biggest risk now, actually, um, for, for the government in terms of this campaign, um, because uh yeah it's it's very easy to see i mean as i say you know the public at the moment that aren't really thinking about brexit 
you know, I think if they see the deal story, they'll see it for a couple of days and then kind of absolutely think, you know, this is done and dusted. I don't need to think about this now. So I think that's the biggest risk. I would agree with Paul that, you know, to get around that, the government need to just really embrace that couple of days where they have that story. And, you know, um, if there's an announcement or a clip or a press conference, whatever it might be, um, you know, a PM moment, um, uh, as, as you know, people say internally, um, then, you know, that, that needs to really clearly involve a flag saying and this is what you now need to do and you now need to go online here um, I think otherwise you know if that moment passes without a moment like that um, then then it will be it will be very difficult to energize people and make people see you know what they have to do coming forward because the assumption will be deal equals no action but James how do you manage to combine the message I pulled off this great deal for the UK and now you really really need to confront that means absolutely masses of red tape, much more inconvenience in all the things, to check your phone contract for roaming charges, get your pass, you know, fill out these forms, hire the hard to find customs agents. How on earth politically do you do that? Yeah, and uh, that that's going to be the challenge, and it's going to be interesting to see whether you know uh, number ten have the appetite to con to combine those those two messages. But you know, I mean, look, I mean, if you you know, it is uh, there is a way of framing that without it without it being um, without it sounding like it's a catastrophe, right? You know, you are able you know you are able to say you know please go on to our nice shiny website and uh, and you know and, and to be fair, you know, I mean, compared to other governments, gov.uk is, is is a very very usable good interface that, that that people do do use it's just getting them there in the first place so yeah I totally agree Joe, that's not going to be the most palatable political um, line I'm sure that um, uh, the Prime Minister would, would love to go up announce a deal um, and then sort of say uh, you know the work's done but um, I do think there probably is a way of framing it just whether the political appetite there is another question. Okay uh, Paul I might come to you on that in, uh, in a bit but let's get on. Jo Joe I suddenly come back to you about the sort of nature of the challenge about communicating the immigration changes obviously EU citizens in the UK are one target audience um, questions about whether the UK has done enough to communicate to British citizens in the EU to make sure they're securing their rights, but also to all those people who have to do the checks. So obviously the government will be worried about any repetition of the wind rush, uh, people losing jobs unnecessarily, not having their rights exercised. Uh, do you think the government's doing enough to communicate that to employers, landlords, etc.? I think you're right, Jill, that you know, immigration is one of those areas which just demonstrates the complexity of what the government is facing, because you're right that we have a settled status scheme for EU nationals living in the UK now, and generally the government has done quite a good job there, especially compared to some other EU states, as you say, four million people registered. Um, and I think you know, the big problem there is that there, we don't know how many EU uh, citizens still need to register. The government has given a grace period until the middle of next year for people to register with that scheme. But, um, you know, there is a big question, a policy question about how you deal with people who have not registered in time. Um, and, you know, at the moment, it looks like you're going to be able to register late if you have a good excuse or reasonable excuse. But in other immigration contexts, that is a very high bar, uh, normally for things like people being hospitalised, for instance. So. You know, there will be a big question there about how the government handles that and how it works there. I think the sort of leveled onto that is the fact that it's not just the settled status scheme. The government is having to communicate two things side by side, which is the existing settled status scheme, but also from January, a new immigration system. And in the first half of next year, you're going to have people who might be eligible for the settled status scheme and getting them to register. And then other people who aren't eligible, who are trying to push into the new immigration system. And as you say, a lot of UK immigration enforcement is done behind the border. It's done by employers when they take on new staff. It's done by landlords when they take on new tenants who check that you have the right paperwork. And we know during the grace period that they will be able to use, you know, EU citizens will be able to use their EU passport um, or ID to show that they have the right to live or work in the UK. Um, that does raise some difficult questions about what happens to EU nationals who turn up after the end of the year. Will they be able to sort of get by 
because they can don't need to prove that they arrived uh, before the end of the transition period. We don't really know there and there's a bit of uncertainty for employers uh, about whether or not they are even allowed to ask when you arrived or whether they have to just take that sort of uh, e-documentation at face value. I also think there's a sort of big challenge for them um, in just sort of preparing for the new system. So I think this is another area where the short time frame left poses a big challenge because particularly for employers, if you're going to use the new immigration system, uh, you need to register as a visa sponsor. Now, there are only about 30,000 odd visa sponsor companies in the UK at the moment. There are you know, potentially tens, hundreds of thousands of businesses who have only ever employed from UK or EU and have never had to really engage with a visa sponsorship system before. Now, it can take a few weeks to set up, you know, get your application in order. It can take a little bit of time for Home Office to turn that around. So if you start working back from the 1st of January, there isn't very much time to prepare. Plus, if you build in a three month notice period that someone might have before they work, there are some firms who might not have prepared, who might be in a position where they are unable to hire someone from the EU on the 1st of January because they're not ready and haven't taken the steps. So I think there's sort of a concrete example there of how not being prepared really could have practical impact. So I think on immigration, basically, the government's done a quite a good job on settled status so far, but it has pushed some problems down the road, potentially. It has some big decisions to take about how it's going to deal with those, particularly in light of Windrush, particularly in light of the fact it's pushed back on having physical documentation for settled to prove your settled status. It is going to have to be careful about how it manages that. But at the same time, it needs to sort of sell and put in place its new immigration system, the details of which it's left quite late in the day as well. Um, and it needs to sort of you know, get businesses, landlords and others to know exactly what set of rules they need to apply to which people and when. Uh, thanks very much, Joe. Lisa, I've got a question here from Joe Edgerton, who's suggesting that basically the TV advertising isn't really aimed at business. It's more aimed at convincing the public that it's business's fault for not preparing. Um, I don't know whether you share that sort of slightly cynical um, cynical view, but there has been a sense, not least from Lord Agnew, that uh, business should be getting on with this. Um, but I wondered whether you could tell us about the sort of other channels the government's using. Should we take at face value the ads that, uh, as you were saying, we can fast forward through? Or are there lots of other communication channels being used like HMRC contacts and working groups and trade associations? or is what we see what we get? Yes, the, yes, of course there is. The government has been engaging with stakeholders, <clears throat> all the trade associations from the big um, uh, players like the CBI membership, you know, the Tesco's, the Rolls Royce, etc. We've got the car manufacturing, SMMT, very, very strong, very vocal organisation. Um, and then we've got all the logistics people, um, uh, Logistics UK, Road Haulage Association, who are also very vocal. But in between, you've got the very, very specialists like um, uh, the air, defence, aviation, um, ports, etc. So the government is engaging, but I think I, I think the one of the issues was, and keep going back to this, is is how the messaging has been basically it's been compromised by by the need for political messaging for virtue signaling, if you like, to your your Brexit or backbenchers. So we know quite recently Michael Gove stood up in the House of Commons and. It said that the Road Holland Association was not a constructive partner. Um, they had uh, requested a meeting with him to go through the, the, the really urgent detail um, of what is needed for truckers and the logistics industry to do by, by the end of the year. Um, and they complained that the meeting was then changed to a meeting with many stakeholders, therefore diluting the amount of time that they had with, with the um, Secretary of State um, and also the, the, the amount of time with the officials, which are the ones that are actually working on communications. So just to come back to the original question, I think the civil service has been really, really good. The micro messaging, the individual updates for every T that's crossed and I that's dotted um, in all, all, all areas impacted by Brexit. Um, there are alerts. I get them, you know, sometimes you kind of 30 alerts from Gov.uk on one line changing on a Department of Transport piece of advice. But if we go back to this issue about how do you communicate with these businesses. For example, yesterday, um, I, we, in preparation for this, I went around the websites to see what the kind of Brexit messaging was. And you go to the key ones, HMRC, Cabinet, Downing Street, 
DEFRA, um, DFT Home Office. So the DFT, scroll down about two screens, you get this interesting thing that was announced yesterday. They um, revealed five lorry parks are going to have vice centres. Um, they didn't press release that. They didn't communicate that. I spoke to the Road Haulage Association. They suggested it had been communicated, but it wasn't communicated in a mass communications way. And they said that on the 15th of November, they were going to um, announce 40 more. I think what they should be doing, they should be doing far more, which is something that they were doing at No Deal and other countries were doing during No Deal planning last year. You should have officials, HMRC officials on ferries. You should have leafleting in parks in Calais. You should have multi-language, Eurotunnel of races, multilingual leafleting, communications in Poland, Bul uh, Bulgaria, um, Romania, where a lot of these lorries are registered, even if they have UK um, uh, ownership, like DHL, etc. Um, there's a mass, mass, mass piece of communications work to be done. And, and if they're going to turn it on after a deal is done or no deal, we, we, we get to conclusion on that. Um, I don't know. There's no sign of it. That's really interesting. Um, I think some questions there about how feasible some of those things that you might have done in uh, other times are when but all sides are being hit by handling uh, the pandemic uh, as well. Um, James, I want to change tack a bit. We've got a question from Anonymous, which I'm going to put to you as the man who asked the public where they are. Um, we've got a sort of um, comment. Uh, the Brexit debate was characterised by mistrust in government on one side, mistrust of Europe on the other. Has this changed, I suppose, do people mistrust government more? I don't know. Has this changed following the government's mishandling of the pandemic? I mean, does the public think the government's mishandled the pandemic and will that have any sort of wider implications for how it views their handling of Brexit, I suppose, be an interesting question. Yeah, very, very interesting question. I think certainly um, I've certainly seen change in, in the focus groups that I've done since the start of the pandemic. I mean, at the very start, um, people were very positive. Um, about how the government had handled it. I mean, obviously had the you know very clear message going into the into the first lockdown, um, and uh, then things sort of slowly slowly shifted. And uh, I think a sort of combination of confusion about message, um, frustration with um, uh, with uh, some of the uh, preparedness, like on uh, test and trace, uh, track and trace, for example, um, uh, and also just a, a building fatigue. Right. I mean, you know, one of the things I think uh, that you know is is, is obviously very relevant today as we go into our second lockdown is that you know doing something the first time is usually easier than than then having to repeat it and i think you know these these uh, a lot of the public do just feel fatigued and certainly in the focus groups uh, that i run you know it would have been impossible to say uh, uh, no one would have admitted uh, during the first lockdown that they had broken the rules. But um, I now see, you know, many more people saying that they're breaking or plan to break the rules in focus group when they're on camera like we are now. Um, so, you know, that social stigma has has gone too. So, yeah, combination of, of confusion, frustration um, and, uh, and and fatigue uh, has certainly meant that, that trust in, in government has, has gone down um uh, in relation to in relation to coronavirus you still do get a bit of um you know particularly amongst sort of voters in the red wall and conservative voters um uh, people who voted conservative for the first time still do tend to say well actually look um you know no government could have handled this any better this is an unprecedented situation so you do get that line which 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 is important and i expect that number 10 are are counting on but yeah look there's no doubt about 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 the trust decline I'm not entirely uh, convinced that feeds massively through to, to the Brexit thing. It's very, it's very much framed in terms of, um, yeah, you know, the uh, the exact rules and uh, that that wonderful uh, Matt Lucas parody parody video, um, which has come up in. Uh, I used to be able to say all, oh, but in my last focus group, it didn't, it didn't come up. But almost all of my focus groups since May, you know, that video came up. So it's very framed. Uh, through COVID, but um, but no, certainly, uh, certainly that 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 is something that has happened, and, um, and and you know I'm sure to some extent that does have an impact. Paul, do you think the government will pay a political price uh, in terms of we've been talking about trust if it doesn't do the deal? Do you think there'd be a political price to pay, or will the government be able to to sort of pin that on the on EU intransigence? I think we saw some polling that suggested that most people would blame. The government if there was no deal but uh, i don't know how robust that that is would you be worried about that i think yeah look, i mean it, inevitably um it, it depends on 
who you can characterize as being most at fault. Uh, so, you know, there has obviously been an attempt to to say recently and to, to characterize the debate as being about EU intransigence, i.e., you know, we just want our rights as uh, as an independent country. And because the EU is not necessarily recognizing that, we have this sort of slightly choreographed um, uh, walkout not that long ago. Um, the thing is that a political price, you know, I guess as veterans of Theresa May's administration could tell you, like comes in lots of forms, right? So, you know, if they do a deal, clearly there will be sections of the Conservative Parliamentary Party that are unhappy about that. Um, there is also a question about, yeah, the price of the additional disruption uh, that would probably happen in the event of no deal and then who the public blame. So, you know, the truth really is that there isn't a cost free option for the government here um, because they're struggling to kind of keep together a fracturing party. But, you know, I, I, I suspect and, you know, James will, will know better from his, you know, his, his actual evidence rather than my slightly ropey anecdotes. But, uh, you, you know, that there will be a, a cost in the public mind, probably for, for not agreeing a deal. You will, however, make a, a you know, a relatively smaller group of people very happy. That's um, very quickly come in on that. Yeah, yeah James. Yeah, just just to just to say that I think uh, this is where I think the most has changed since last year. I think this time last year, if we were asking this question of, you know, would the public be up for a No Deal Brexit? I think they probably would have because, uh, as in as in you know, the Leave and Conservative, the voters that Conservatives would need to win an election. Uh, obviously, not the whole public, um, but there would have been a lot more permission for that because um, uh, you know there was a frustration. There felt like there was no way out. People were desperate for it to be over. Um, and, and also there was a real sort of feeling of grievance with the EU. I think that has now shifted and certainly in my focus groups with Leave voters, it was very interesting uh, um, around sort of September when we sort of had the internal markets bill and and sort of, you know, the, the fate, uh, sort of a, a more of a sense of a conflict with the EU. A lot of people couldn't really understand why that was. Um, it was a lot harder to sort of uh, mm -hmm. work out what the grievance was. Um, and therefore, that didn't really convert into any political boost for the government. I remember quite a few commentators saying, well, you know, when all that was kicking off, that actually this was going to lead to a boost amongst uh, for Boris Johnson amongst Lee voters. In fact, the opposite happened and, and the ratings continued to tick down largely due to due to COVID. So we're not seeing that sort of political dividend come, come from no deal or the prospect of no deal uh, uh, in the same way now, and um, I, and I wouldn't I wouldn't really expect that to change. You know, last year people were annoyed with the EU because they thought they were trying to keep us in. Uh, this time, um, there isn't that that same sense of grievance. Lisa, we've got a question here from Federico Bianchi from the UK EU delegation to the UK. Hi, Federico. Um, Ask whether uh, whether we thought that the EU should have been communicating more directly engaging more with the British public uh, in the talks. I don't know whether you have any impression of how the EU has been or not been speaking directly or on tenterhooks for any pronouncement by Monsieur Barnier, but uh, what do you make of that? I think that's a very cheeky question from a representative <laughs> of the EU in London, Federico. Um, I think, don't we all know that the EU had its hands tied behind its back, but it didn't, it couldn't interfere with um, a decision made by a sovereign nation. Um, I mean, we had a lot of communications towards the end of last year from the Irish government because the um, Irish border was the big um, sticking point. Um, and I would have argued at the time that I thought it would have been better had the Irish government talked directly to the British public and the, really the British MPs who are making the decisions by going on the Today programme and Newsnight and Key programmes like that. Um, I mean, I don't know how many times I asked for an interview with um, Leo Varadkar um, over the four years and every single one of them was was denied. Um, so um, I, 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 that's my answer, Federico. <laughs> okay, Joe, you would come in. I just, um... I suppose just wanted to uh, flag that I think you know, the EU sort of comms is definitely a very sort of pressing issue as well. Obviously, it's not just about you know, the EU speaking to people in the UK. It's also a lot about the EU speaking to people in the EU because we know that, you know, you know avoiding disruption and sort of managing the transition from the end of the year doesn't just rely on the UK being ready and UK visitors and UK individuals. It also relies very much on EU side being ready. And we know, you know, 85% of the haulage market between the UK and the EU, I think as sort of Lisa was alluding to, 
is uh, you know, where EU registered poorly is. Um, so it's uh, uh, you know, it's definitely a, a big task. Um, and I think we've seen very sort of mixed picture on the EU side as well about how effective they've been. Um, I think it would be a miss to sort of have a whole uh, session on comms and not mention the Netherlands Brexit Muppet character. So we've seen um, uh, we've seen that some EU countries do a really you know, quite have run quite effective campaigns. I think particularly those countries that are most exposed to the, uh, Brexit and the consequences of Brexit. So you know, the Netherlands, Ireland, as Lisa mentioned, uh, you know, have these sort of uh, comprehensive campaigns. Um, and I think one thing that's they've sort of been able to benefit from where we've seen good campaigns on the EU side is they haven't faced the same political constraints as the UK. I think they have been able to be more frank and more open for longer about the trade-offs involved in the type of Brexit that the UK is pursuing, about the fact that there are going to be these big changes, about the fact basically that the status quo isn't an option. And they've been able to hammer those messages quite clearly for quite some time without having to worry about selling you know, the upsides and opportunities. Um, so I think that has been a really positive thing. And you know, we've seen some creative use of uh, mascots. So I mentioned there's what, Netherlands Brexit Muppet, which uh, when it was launched ahead of a no deal last year, saw a tenfold increase in the number of people visiting the Netherlands main Brexit landing page on their website um, over yeah, overnight, which was very effective. Or I did notice when I had a look earlier, slightly tongue in cheek, but it seems to be far more prevalent on the Dutch language parts of the website than on the English language parts of the website. Um, uh, that has been very effective, but I think we should also be clear that you know it is a mixed picture across the EU. Some member states have not done very much to update their information this year. Some member states have really sort of left it and said, we'll tell you when a deal comes. Some have just pushed you towards the documents the Commission puts out, which are very dense, very technical, and quite often leave the practical details to member states to tell you exactly what it means if you're a business or an individual. Um, and we know that you know, business readiness and individual readiness in some member states, particularly France and some of the big member states, is very poor still. So you know, there are some good things happening on the EU side. But it's not, uh, you know, I think everyone is struggling to get this message across and everyone's having to deal with COVID at the same time. OK, we're in the final straights here and I just wanted to, I'm going to challenge Lisa and Joe to say what are the sort of three things that uh, government needs to be most worried about on the critical day, first day, first week of the new year. And then I'm going to challenge James and Paul to work out uh, actually, what would they be doing about it if they were back in number 10 in terms of preparing and in terms of conveying the messages while uh, remaking the case for Brexit? Lisa, what's top of your list as, uh, as the things that the government really needs to watch out for early into the new year? As, I, uh, I think we, we, haven't, we haven't touched on Northern Ireland, Jill, just briefly. As we know, all GB businesses who supply goods to Northern Ireland have got to um, get to get to grips with the paperwork, the customs separations yeah. that they are all obliged to make from first of January. I think that message hasn't got got through to. I mean, presumably it's got through to the Tesco's and the big car companies and all of that, but it has not to the SMEs. So that's number one. And number two, I think the checks and the chaos on the roads. If you have that, it'll be mid January, early to mid January, and it it will settle down. Um, so although as a reporter, there's going to be a story there, I think the public would kind of expect that. They've been primed for that. So it might be politically the, the big problem for the government. But I do think the area that ha carries most risk is people. Those stories that we would be writing about, about EU citizens being turned down for jobs, being chucked out of flats, about British people not being able to come back to the country with their EU spouse. I've had, you know, over the, over the years, many, many stories that we'll get in our internal traffic system will show like over a million, 1.5, 2 million page views, which is huge considering The Guardian, you know, in, in, in its in its heyday was, was selling hundreds of thousands. These have massive cut through. And I think those human interest stories are the ones, you know, those are the ones. If you find that Brits are being discriminated against um, and you've got elderly people or you've got sick people, um, in in Europe that are being discriminated against, that's that's going to have have um, ramifications, I think, um, for the yeah. politics and the responsibility taken by the government. Joe, what would you add to the list? Anything? 
I think I definitely agree with all of that. I think you know, Northern Ireland is definitely a huge issue. And the fact that you know, the UK government could do less on its own to waive checks and waive things unilaterally means that that is a big issue. And there's going to have to be sort of conversations, we think, with the EU about how you mitigate those things. I think one of the two big things I'd point out sort of problems in January one, I think, is about how you maintain that momentum to carry on preparing for these things that are coming in later. Once you've had your big moment of change, how you actually convince people that things are happening. And the last one is just, I suppose, what you do with compliance as well. If people aren't ready, what is your message to them? Is it we're going to hit you hard, you need to prepare, or is it going to be we're going to give you a bit of a tap on the wrist and next time you better do better. And I think there's a big question there about how the government handles that, particularly given you know, we know the circumstances have been really difficult to prepare. And you know, we've always known that it's going to be difficult to make these changes, particularly this year. James, coming to you, what would you, you know, with those potential risks, but still obviously wanting to get over the political message that deal or no deal, this was the right choice. Perhaps uh, one or two people have noted in the uh, Q&A, perhaps against a bit of growing public dissolution about whether Brexit was really worth it or not, maybe not. How would you be thinking about going about your sort of comms from uh, late deck into the end of January? Let's have a sort of period. Or would you just say, actually, COVID's so big, uh, it's going to just dominate anywhere. No one's going to notice any of these changes because life's so different. Well, I think certainly, uh, I think stepping up um, uh, the research and making sure that, you know, they are, uh, you know, getting a read of what where the public are and which messages work best. I mean, they're obviously doing that and have already done that, but very important, I think, to do that again after a deal, uh, you know, in, in the event of a deal being agreed um, or not, um, to just see how that changes and which messages amplify the most. Um, I think, uh, as, 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 we, as, as Paul referred to earlier, and, and we talked about, you know, using that sort of moment of announcement, whenever that might be, um, uh, to then sort of, you know, have a sort of a clear sort of um, uh, uh, PM uh, moment on that to just, uh, you know, stress that, yes, good news, but also urgency. Um, uh, and I think, you know, making sure that that feeds through any, any of the comms. And I think just, you know, in terms of, you know, landing the preparedness message, I think try and take the politics out of it as much as possible. You know, make this a technical thing that you have to do on X date. Um, and inject the urgency. There's a bit of that already with the with the comms campaign, but really stressing that, you know, getting away from, you know, this being a Brexit battle or this being an identity thing, or even, you know, talking about, you know, like I said, like I said earlier, the Sunday Uplands, um, just focus on you need to do this on X date because those more technical government comms campaigns do work uh, very well. And the final thing I'd say is, is you know, ensure this is properly resourced. You know, this is going to have to be a big, you know, all channel blitz. It's going to, as one of the questioners mentioned, you know, this needs to be something that's very tailored to business on the one hand, tailored to the public on the other. Um, it might not be the most sort of popular thing at the moment, but, you know, ensuring this really does have, uh, you know, the money behind it is, is going to be important because each, you know, extra you know bit of money spent on this is probably saving lost money in terms of disruption um, at borders and with business. Paul, uh, coming to you last, your former press secretary of the Prime Minister, you obviously didn't do on-camera press conferences, but no, we're told that they goodness. start on the 1st of January. Allegra Stratton will be standing up. Uh, if you were Allegra and starting to think now about what you needed to be most worried about and preparing for, how would you be uh, putting yourself in the best position to have good answers on the 1st of January? Yeah, I mean that's interesting. We will uh, we'll see if it does happen on the first of January. But you know, Allegra has a, a a big and slightly unenviable job to do because it's much easier, as you've seen from even me this morning, to sort of shuffle around and say slightly sarcastic things off camera than it is to do when someone's pointing a camera at you. So, uh, yeah, I think <laughs> our sympathies to her. Although, it will in fairness be an amazing job. Um, I mean, I've obviously suffered the, the huge disadvantage of trying to go last here because uh, JJ has said virtually everything sensible that there is to say on this topic. Uh, he's right about resourcing. You know, there's been quite a lot about this sort of the 70 million quid that the government is spending. My understanding is they've spent about half that so far. So there is some stuff that's clearly going to come on stream uh, that, you know, that that is going to happen anyway as you try to ramp up and amplify those uh, those messages right at the critical point and it is very important to kind of direct the pm's time on this appropriately so you know as, as we've all said there will be moments of cut through uh which you know come in the sort of in the way that only really the pm can generate uh allied to the news environment um 
Allegra will be a, a supplement to to all of that. And you know, in in a way, if you know, if the timings do line up, uh, then the novelty of there being on-camera press briefings for the first time is something that government can use to its advantages because at the very least people will be watching and you know part of the the, the problem I think we've all identified on this webinar today is about the fact that the government is trying to get people to pay attention during a completely unprecedented time where their attention is quite rightly drawn elsewhere so you know if nothing else um Allegra will be able to command a certain amount of public interest because of the novelty. So, yeah, and um, you know, I have no doubt she'll do a very good job in doing that. Good. That's a very diplomatic point on which to end. So, I think uh, I'm going to just thank all our panelists as we've come to the end of our time. I think the big message there is that there are a lot of difficult stories to get out, and uh, government's got a major task, uh, but it also has perhaps uh, the fact that lockdown is resolved for the time being to use the opportunity of November to start preparing people. I'd just like to say thank you very much for watching. Yes, do like take a look at our IFG live links on our website where you can find um, a recording of this uh, event and others. And uh, you'll also find our recent report uh, um, on how ready the UK is for the end of the transition period, which picks up on some of the themes from our event today. So thanks again to the panel. Thank you for watching and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Bye.